This is the California Liberty Project Podcast. So welcome back to the California Liberty Project Podcast. My name is Greg and I appreciate everyone being here and joining me uh, again. Uh, make sure to follow us and subscribe on Spotify, on Apple, Google, um, even Instagram at California Liberty Project. And I'm trying to get better about tweeting and even uploading videos to YouTube where I can, when I can, and when they don't get struck down. So I've mentioned that before, but that's a that's a constant battle. Um, I upload when I can, but certainly always on Spotify, Apple, Google. Uh, make sure to follow us there and share and like. But for today, we want to jump right into it. Um, really happy to be joined by a great guest, CJ Engel. Um, and I've I've heard of and seen some of CJ's work through the years, I think even dating back possibly to the Tom Woods podcast um, or others. And most recently, I've been really intrigued by CJ's work over at the Chronicles Magazine podcast, which is a really great um, new, new-ish podcast that I've been watching that covers a lot of um, really cool ideas about culture politics and whatnot. And CJ is essentially the host of the Chronicles Magazine podcast. It's definitely worth checking out. Um, I really enjoy it. And uh, so CJ, welcome to the California Liberty Project podcast. Yeah, thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks for joining us today. So let's jump right in. Um, You know, talk about as much of this as you'd like to, but I I think some of your own journey kind of mirrors um, mine or possibly mine mirrors yours or what have you. But I think a lot of people that were coming from libertarianism, specifically, I've I've known a lot of Austro-libertarians, certainly, and maybe even right libertarians or paleo-libertarians who have kind of been on a journey, it seems like. Um, Maybe after reading some some right-wing thought, uh, maybe after reading like Mencius Moldbug, Curtis Yarvin, um, or maybe just having their own spontaneous journey. But I think a lot of us have had a journey or, or an awakening from libertarianism and then wanted to expand and, and learn more about ideas on the right and just cultural ideas, uh, Western civilization, more, more of the history and um, even philosophy, dare I say. Um, so where are you on that, on that journey currently, uh, on your own journey? Um, and is that a fair characterization of maybe where you've been and where you're at or where you're going. Yeah, a couple people, a number of different people that I've I've known over the years, they kind of refer to what's happening as a sort of post-libertarianism. Uh, and so that can mean different things to different people. People can find themselves, you know, in different areas of the, the right or really the, the anti-left. You know, there's different ways yes. of saying it, but I really like the phrase post-libertarianism because it's really broad enough to describe what's happening. Uh, and not everybody is going to the same places. Um, some people are, are seeking refuge ideological refuge uh, in, in various uh, portions of the anti-left or you could even call it the anti-Americanist ideology you know that as it's developed in the 20th century and just a lot of people they like myself and presumably yourself they realize that there's um, you know the world has shifted in so many in so dramatic uh, a sense over the last 20 years that um, 
trying to keep our bearings about us uh, has been proven, you know, increasingly difficult. And the idea of like just remaining firm and sticking to the old libertarian creed, uh, it really presents uh, unique challenges that have have uh, libertarians haven't. Um, had an opportunity to grapple with uh, in times past. You know, the the libertarian movement of the 1970s and 1980s, they faced completely different circumstances uh, than we face today. And so libertarianism and the people that have, uh, you know, learned about it, digested it, and they're trying to apply it to the current world are facing, you know, a, a u- really unique set of dilemmas. Uh, and I think that some of those dilemmas we'll get into today, but I think that just describes uh, the current that I've been swimming in over the last several ye- years is this post-libertarian instinct. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I've had some some great guests on this new and kind of growing podcast here, California Liberty Project. But I've spoken to folks, um, obviously such as yourself, but I've, I've talked with Buck Johnson, uh, Pete Quinones, um, mm-hmm. and others too, who have been on a really interesting journey. Um, and for me, for the past couple of years or so, maybe more, I've been saying that libertarianism is correct, but not complete. It is not a complete worldview or a complete philosophy. It's great applied to certain instances of, um, of trying to rein in government. Um, to me, the non-aggression principle is, is extremely obvious. It's like, well, yeah, of course, it's kind of stemming from Judeo-Christian values and whatnot. Um, all of these things, like don't steal from others, don't, don't damage their property, uh, don't aggress upon the rights of another it all sounds very obvious. And I think, yes, those, those lessons and those dictates still apply. Those ideas still apply, but I just don't think that libertarianism itself, you know, qua libertarianism or as libertarianism alone in a vacuum, I don't think it's enough to build a strong civil society. Uh, Let me Mm -hmm. ask you, is, is a values neutral kind of classical liberal society is it possible, first of all, or is it even desirable in your view? I don't think it's possible. And I think that's one of the problems that libertarians have had is they've, you know, there, there was a debate a couple of years back over like um, what was termed a thick libertarianism versus a thin libertarianism. And the thick libertarians at that time were talking about the fact that, uh, you know, not only did we need to talk about the non-aggression principle and, you know, the, the, the absolute rights of, of property that individuals should have, um, but we also should care about some of these more um, these more general social justice themes. You know, that was kind of the phrase back in the day. There was the social justice warriors, which you don't see the, that phrase anymore. Right. But that was kind of the thing is like as individuals, even if we're not going to use the state to help implement our ideas, we had to you know, as we were obligated as humans to kind of just take part in what was happening on these types of cultural matters. The thin libertarians, you know, saw this as sort of um, capitulating to regime narratives. And they said that actually libertarianism needs to be remain strictly a very thin slice of political theory where we can have these, you know, strictly defined um, boundaries on the state or even, you know, even for those who were didn't, want the state they could they would be bound by these really strict legal principles you know having to do with aggression and and mm-hmm. and the logical derivatives of that principle um you know and so i think that whole debate kind of fell apart because the thin libertarians you know they at the same time they were trying to 
articulate um, the need for something more expansive. You know, the, in order for society to function, in order for it to be healthy, we need to have commitments outside of, um, you know, whatever, you know, these very specific and very carefully defined, uh, you know, aspects of the legal system. We needed to think beyond that. And we needed to treat libertarianism as something that fits within a broader view of things. Uh, and so the whole thick versus thin debate kind of broke down, in my opinion, because people realized that we did need more than libertarianism and libertarianism was not, it wasn't worth coming back to the same old razor thin debates uh, that had taken place over the previous 10 years because we were in a state of cultural uh, and sociological emergency. Yeah, I agree. I, I guess one of the things I was going to ask you, um, and it sounds like we're in agreement, but first and foremost, I think it's a fair question for any of us to ask our neighbors or ourselves, are we in a state of cultural decay? And, and I don't mean to be pedantic with that question, but some people will, you know, some left libertarians, for example, uh, Cato types, um, if you've seen some of their Instagram posts, you know, celebrating Pride Month and um, gay rights or LGBT rights or, uh, you know, they're coming from capitalism, whatnot. Uh, but some people think everything is, is fine right now. Things are going really well. And they would almost mm -hmm. deny that there is a state of cultural decay, uh, CJ. And I think it's fair to say that you and I would, it sounds like, um, agree with each other that we are in some kind of accelerated cultural decay, um, first and foremost. Um, it, well, is that, is that fair? Are we, are we in agreement there? I, I Absolutely. And there's a good okay. reason these libertarians don't see it as a state of decay, because for every decay, there's always a buildup of something that's trying to replace it, you know, and, mm -hmm. and it really exposes the, the fact that there's um, there's there's two completely different libertarian camps, you know, and some people have noted that that one camp is associated with like the Mises types, the Mises Institute yes. types. Others are associated with DC libertarianism and, and all the think tanks and, you know, massive endowments and funds that they get. Uh, and they're completely different cultures. They're completely different visions and way of life and interpretation of history and um, the, the interpretation of, of progress. So, you know, are, is progress something that we can use to describe us? Um, and so, yeah, these are completely different visions. And I think that debate actually exposes uh, part of the problem that libertarianism is facing. It's, it's, it's unable to maintain any sort of cultural cohesion or cultural consensus. Uh, and that's why libertarianism is breaking down is because it's exposed the fact that you can't build a movement on mere intellectual assent to 10 propositions. That's not how right. society grows. That's, that's, not, that's not how culture grows. And that's ultimately uh, not how, how movements grow. There was, you know, one of the one of the interesting stories I read when I was struggling with this three years ago was um, the experience of, of various ex-socialists, ex-Marxists, uh, and they came to the conclusion that Marxists are actually very smart. A lot of people think they're just dumb and wacky, but there's actually an intellectual class of Marxists that are brilliant, um, and they've they've kind of figured out the world according to their own formulations um, to a very precise degree, uh, to a degree so precise that um, you know libertarianism is probably the only other precise doctrine like Marxism. But they began to realize these ex-socialists began to realize that um, it was actually not very it was not characteristic of a very healthy society just to have mere agreement in these propositions they needed something more at the sentimental and cultural level um that would sustain them they realized that it was it was healthier to have a society where there is 
disagreement than to have everyone be a Marxist, but nobody actually get along. You know, I think that's really analogous to what happened in libertarianism is we realized we were completely, we were from completely different worlds. We had completely conflicting visions and it broke apart. Exactly. Um, I I had written a few years back an article on the left-right divide in libertarianism. And for me, I always found it perplexing that there are so many, you know, capital L type libertarians, um, many of whom are our friends or allies or what have you, but so many of them put the blinders on and say, we're not left or right. We just believe in, you know, we believe in freedom, you know, and full stop. Right. And I always found that to be, you know, (laughs) crazy, um, incorrect, because there is always this tension. People have been talking about it for years in the Liberty camp. There's always a tension between, you know, it used to be the social justice warriors, as you mentioned. Now it's kind of woke, whatever it is, you know, cultural Marxism. I know that's a sloppy term. Uh, It's a non-academic term, but you know, there's always, there's always that tension between those folks on that camp. And then, of course, more of the Ron Paul people and the Mises Institute gang and, you know, Lou Rockwell and um, Murray mm-hmm. Rothbard. And there was this natural divide there. And people, you know, in the capital L type libertarian movement would kind of bang their head against the desk and say, huh, this is so weird. No, we're not. We're not Republicans. We're not Democrats or left or right. I, I can't seem to figure out where this divide is coming from. And I wrote this article saying, well, duh, it's the left-right divide manifesting itself naturally, organically, and spontaneously. You can pretend it isn't there. You can pretend that libertarianism is some new thing that's different in a vacuum with no cultural values associated with it. But life finds a way, so to speak, you know, like from Jurassic Park. This is going to happen because it's organic and spontaneous. You know, the left-right, almost, dare I say, dialectic in society. Um, that's where I was coming from on that. I think, I think I agree with your sentiments there. Yeah, I do want to say too, um, you know, I do agree that there are organic elements to this, but, um, I'm really of the opinion that culture is driven by politics. Now, um, this is kind of the consequence of the managerial revolution in the 20th century and that culture Mm. and politics, the dynamic there has completely swapped over the last hundred years. And um, it used to be, you could, you you might be able to say in the 19th century that um, politics was downstream from culture, but I don't think yeah. you can say that now. And I think that people like Murray Rothbard have really pointed out the fact that, um, you know, culture has been the product of the administrative state in the 20th century, uh, especially yes. in the latter half of the 20th century. And, and now everything is kind of shifted and upside down and culture flows from politics now. Yes, and I heard, um, I think it was Aaron McIntyre just the other day, great thinker, um, great follow on Twitter and whatnot. He has some great thoughts. He was saying um, that he agrees with so much of Andrew Breitbart, and I think Andrew Breitbart was a great warrior, a happy warrior. Um, but he was saying that essentially, kind of similar to what you're saying, that basically culture oftentimes is actually downstream from power. And I think that was really an astute um, and simple statement because... I think it's hard to deny that if you look at all the data, all the evidence of the past, let's say at least three years, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, we 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 tend to conceive of um, culture as just. I mean, a lot of it is is our way of thinking and and the uh, the narratives and the emphasis and the priorities that we place on things like the the free market. Um, 
you know, anybody, and this is something that's true of traditionalists and reactionaries, like where I see myself going, and libertarians who are critical of the managerial state, both of them realize that the 20th century cannot be described as a free market. And if it can't be described as a free market, then a lot of the culture elements that have been happening can find their source in the elite sections of this new managerial economic system. It's not organic and it's not bottom up, but it's really top down. And it comes from it comes from institutions like the Federal Reserve and um, some of the the the, um, the agents of dispersion of all this capital. Um, you know that, that kind of flows from the center there. But at the end of the day, the, you know the culture, especially now, is downstream from power and uh, in our in our time, you know, economic power uh, in particular. I think that's critical. This is, you know, this is something that people like Oren have been talking about, but but um, they get this from from Paul, people like Paul Gartford. Sure. He's been talking about this for before, you know, Oren came onto the scene. I mean, this is something that he and you know his buddies at Chronicles in the '90s uh, have been talking about for a long time. Is is the entire the idea that we still have this like federal republic and that we need to preserve it and fight for it is is nonsensical. Um, you know, there was the creation, the abolition of the old America and the creation of a new one. And, you know, this came about in stages, uh, but the 20th century really transformed the entire structure of things. Um, and so now, yes, the culture is downstream from power. And this is something that this is kind of the point of even like Murray Rothbard's history of the progressive era. Mm -hmm. I mean, that, that's the transformation of the American system into something completely new. Yeah, and you're absolutely right about Paul Gottfried, um, a fascinating scholar, and he's been been doing this for you know almost 50 years, I believe. Um, people should definitely check out um, Paul's many books, his, his many works, scholarly works on this. And it's interesting too. You mentioned Paul, and recently there's been a little bit of a kerfuffle, or at least an intellectual skirmish that I found fascinating, as far as wokeness and social justice. Does it originate with? Marxism. You know, I think a lot of like Fox News, Hannity types, just, you know, normal everyday conservatives might say, mm -hmm. oh, yeah, this is just neo-Marxism or this is Marxism, mm -hmm. uh, which is very sloppy. You know, when they're referring to all the cultural rot, the decay, the so-called cultural Marxism. But is it really actually true Marxism? And I think Paul Gottfried has done great work um, and scholarly work as well, just noting that this has no, this bears no resemblance to true classical Marxism. Now, I am not a Marxist. I'm an anti-Marxist. I think the economics is garbage. That's completely wrong and the labor theory of value and, and so forth. But um, Marxism, I think there's strong evidence that it is not woke. Contrary to what maybe James Lindsay and some other folks who are newer on the scene are saying that um, this is this is Marxist or vaguely neo-Marxist. Um, where do you weigh in on that, um, that kind of current conversation over the past few months? I agree with Paul, um, you, you know, and that should be obvious to anyone. I, you know, I've gotten to know Paul very well. I'm actually working on a biography of Paul. And so I've gotten to know him very well. And I take his position on so many different things. And this is one of them. I, I, I agree with him that you could best characterize this this current left as a post-Marxist left. I agree with him that Marxism fell apart, um, you know, with the collapse of the Soviet Union and, and it fell apart in stages and the intellectuals kind of fled and they had to rethink things and reorient themselves and their priorities. And I think they abandoned um, the Marxist framework 
of uh, dialect material dialectical change in the world, um, and they abandoned the emphasis on e economic categories. And I think they took up um, something that came from um, you know the contributions of psychology, um, and they also captured the capitalist class. Sorry about that. I think I had a little bit of an internet glitch there, but but to get to finish my point, I, yes, I do, I think that we are experiencing and seeing a post-Marxist left. I don't. I think they've rejected all of the old economic um, framework that, d that defined Marxism in general. And you know, a, a lot of times people like James Lindsay will say that that um, the new left, the the woke left, is culturally Marxist because they still use the dynamics of the oppressed versus the oppressor. Um, but one of the things that Paul Gottfried's pointed out is that there's so many other camps, you know, uh, anti-liberal or, or just non-liberal camps that speak in those terms as well. They talk about, I mean, even people like Hans Hoppe and other libertarians, they've they've used this language to describe the dynamics of those in power and those outside of power um, in society. And so the new left uses com a completely different um, framework. A lot of it borrows from like the, the contributions of psychology. Um, that's why Paul Gottfried uses the phrase, the therapeutic state. So I do think mm -hmm. that this new post-Marxist left is indeed post-Marxist. I think that they are yes. leveraging the rhetoric of liberalism, like uh, individual rights and free expression and freedom of speech. They're levering those things in order to implement a new like liberal totalitarianism where they use these themes um, to their advantage. You know, um, of course, it's yes. not consistent because they are on the left and they're not interested actually uh, in, an, in an equal society. Um, they don't believe in individualism. They believe in their vision of things and they're going to operate within um, the rhetoric and the bounds of uh, permissible thinking that kind of appeals to just the everyday uh, American that has been has grown up on like John Locke and uh, Thomas Jefferson and some of those things. So they're employing that language and they have no interest in an economic class warfare, but instead they use therapeutic class warfare um, and they, they turn everything on those hinges and emphasize uh, things like sexism and racism and all, all of those categories. Yes. And I think um, just a month or two ago in Chronicles magazine, which I'm a subscriber of, um, so I, I encourage anyone and everyone to, to subscribe definitely but i read a great piece by i believe it was alexander riley i want to credit him where i think a lot of the post-marxist left which i like that term i think it's very fitting very accurate i think a lot of them kind of like what you're intimating at is that they're able to kind of coast on the fumes of this spectacular society that was built up but that society it kind of became a vacuum and nature abhors mm -hmm. a vacuum right or the classical liberal vacuum it has some great ideas, but they're not enough. They're not. Uh, they're not sufficient to build and maintain a society. Maybe, um, and I think mm -hmm. Alexander Riley was arguing some of that. We're just coasting on the fumes of a greater society, and the post-Marxist left is happy to do that. Like you're saying, they adopt some of the rhetoric, some of the language of good old-fashioned liberals, but they don't believe mm -hmm. any of that. They they're pragmatists mm -hmm. at the end of the day. Yeah, it's it's interesting. Um, you know, there's a distinction between what I would call a historicist liberalism and a universalist liberalism. And the historicist mm. liberalism are the themes of liberty that came out of the British tradition. Um, you know, that'd be like Edmund Burke, who was not mm -hmm. a traditionalist uh, at his time. He was a liberal, but he was part of a liberal in the way that the, the principles of, of his type of liberalism were derived from the British uh, historical development of, and politics. You know, the rights that he claimed uh, fealty to came from his own 
circumstances, the own development of the British tradition. And that's a historicist liberalism. So you can have these themes like private property and individual liberty and even free association and free speech and all these themes. They have to be interpreted within the context of political dynamics over time. That's historicist liberalism. Mm-hmm. Uh, that type of liberalism um, is completely uh, impossible today. Then there's the universalist liberalism. You could call it the French liberalism, where um, they didn't look at these themes as deriving from their own political developments, but they looked at them independent of society and something that society needed to work itself toward. Uh, all societies can only be considered just if they adhere to and 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 um, you know they they conform to these universalist standards. Um, so these two types of libertarian uh, of liberalism um, are often clouded together. They're often blurred together, but I think it's mm-hmm. important to make those distinctions. The modern 20th century liberals who are not liberals at all, they right. use the rhetoric of the French tradition where it's universalist. And that's why they have to do, that's why they have internationalist efforts to try to expand uh, liberties and they make sure that all Western societies are democracies, you know, so-called, and they use these uh, liberal convictions and priorities to expand their influence around the world. They don't appeal to their liberties as derived from a specific society like the British tradition, but they're really universalistic. Uh, But even though they are using this rhetoric, they're actually not implementing it at all. They're actually more interested in their own political power hegemony. Yeah, and that's the really interesting thing too about um, us here as Americans. And I, you know, I, I love this country. I love our tradition. I, I do admit I love Jefferson. Um, I have an admiration for Locke, but I realize that a lot of that needs to be backfilled, you know, with with cultural aspects. But the cool thing is, the amazing thing is, and you're mentioning historicist liberalism, almost in the Burkean tradition, and of course Burke supported our revolution, you know, um, and. Um, you know, and I'm not sure where he stood on the concept of natural rights, but natural rights, which is, you know, basically that now has been absorbed into conserving or at least part of the right here in America. But I understand the tension there because natural rights themselves can be revolutionary, right? And if we're not careful, um, if you get just a little bit beyond natural rights, you, know, you start packing or accreting other things onto that you very quickly you're into the French tradition, which is radical egalitarianism, which gets into mm-hmm. positive rights. And it's a very, it's a very, I don't want to say a fine line, but we have to be very careful there. Um, you know, maintaining yeah, natural pay- rights, but then not becoming radicals right. like the psychotic um, people of the, the, you know, Jacobins and the French tradition. Uh, go ahead there. You're going to comment on that. Yeah. Well, I mean, we just have to be aware of um, the corruption of that language. You know, I mean, that was kind of the Wilsonian Rooseveltian um, contribution to political society was the corruption of these things for the interests of the managerial state. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, So bringing things back um, to California here, um, California Liberty Project, um, and this is really more of a national story at this point, but the LA Dodgers thing, you know, it's mm-hmm. the big new religious holiday. June has arrived. We're recording this, of course, in early June. And um, every every major corporation in the land, you know, has, as we've all been discussing, they all have to bend the knee. They all have to fly the flag of the conqueror um, and on and on and on. <clears throat> and there's this bit, there, there's been the big controversy 
with the Dodgers. And, you know, obviously they're going to they're going to honor this anti-Catholic um, group that blasphemes uh, Jesus Christ, you know, and is very insulting to religious symbology and whatnot. Um, and it's exploded into this national you know, controversy, of course, that we're all talking about. Um, let me uh, step back and ask the big question, the obvious question that we've been that we've been talking about, um, that so many people have been batting around. Why, in your opinion, does it seem that every corporation must bend the knee and so outwardly, so visibly go through this genuflection, this uh, religious ceremony every June at this point in time? Why, why, in your opinion, are we here culturally? There's, there's two answers to that. Um, you know, one is that they really believe it. One is that they've been so like drunk on this new ideology that they are, um, they're zealot, they're zealots about it. You know, they like sort of like this, you know, mm-hmm. religious fervor that has just completely captured their mind, and they can't see the world in any other way um, than the idea that they are, um, you know, would be martyrs uh, to like the like um, Inquisition or something. Like they really think that they are freedom fighters. Um, they've been completely drunk on this stuff. And I think that's true for a lot of people, especially downstream from it. On the other hand... True believers. Yeah. yeah. And, and on the other hand, um, there are interested parties in um, maintaining c- cultural conformity. And these types mm-hmm. of people, you know, and, and uh, this is kind of like the, the contribution. There's a book by Sam Francis, um, Leviathan. I think it's Leviathan and its enemies. Um, mm-hmm. And he elaborates on sort of the contributions of like James Burnham and sort of the the science of power. And he talks mm-hmm. about the fact that there's a class of people who uh, leverage ideology for their own benefit. They themselves are not true believers, but they're above it and they use it and they employ it for their own uh, benefit. So when you have all of these corporations, t- you know, towing the line, so to speak, um, that I think that they're afraid to see. Um, the various types of legislation and legal code that have been derived from the civil rights revolution in the 1960s and 70s, there's been a completely re- there's been a complete reconstruction of the legal code so as to make these these people these companies liable um, to the point of bankruptcy if they don't participate in these trends. And the reason is is because um, the CEOs and all the decision makers, they're all employees of the company. They're all employees of the owners of the company. The owners of the company are the shareholders. The major shareholders in all these corporations are massive hedge funds. They're massive you know, funds that are all owned by like very similar people and they're all directing these things. And the, the, the people that actually work there, the CEO and the, uh, the marketing officers and all those people, they have to toe the line or they'll get fired and they'll get crushed. And I think to a lot of that, um, basically is just fear of being sued and fear of, uh, financial loss and, you know, and fear of, um, you know, backlash of the shareholders who are not just you and me, but the actual fund managers and the people that have, you know, a voice on these things. And so those types of people are the ones that are, that are really pushing this. Um, I don't think that like, I, I mean, there are, there are true believers, you know, there are zealots there, but I don't think that that's at the basis. Yeah. I think their ze- I think their zealous mentality is actually derived from the managerial elite themselves. They've crafted these people to work for them. And so I think that's kind of right. where the ideology comes in. It's at the second layer of power, not the primary inertia of all of this. 
Yeah, I think that's right. Um, power. It, it, so much of this goes back to pragmatism and the study of power, uh, you know, and all those great Italian writers who have who have kind of developed that and then, you know, certainly into Burnham. But I think a lot of the, uh, as you were mentioning, a lot of the true believers uh, or the NPCs, to use a, a, a meme term, but I think a lot of them just kind of go along with this because of that burning human instinct to just uh, belong and to genuflect before power. And I think that's how so many of the masses kind of go along with this. And then it turns into almost a bullying thing, a conformity thing. Um, but yeah, I think you make a really good point. The large hedge fronts, you know, the, the Black Rock, the Vanguard, and, you know, a lot of those types of outfits. The question in my mind is, why do they want this cultural conformity? Why are they pushing it? I understand, I think, why so many of the um, the true believers kind of go along with it, you know, because they want to genuflect to true power. And true power is even, it's not even found in governments these days. It is like these Black Rocks, the vanguards and whatnot. But why, why are these hedge funds so intent on pushing this cultural, um, should I say, um, this homogeneity? You, you know the phrase in economics, creative destruction? Um Yes, I think I think it's similar to that it's not creative, um, but it is destruction, and and in destruction comes opportunity. In uh, destruction comes the ability to um, you know harmonize economic interests into yourself, uh, into your own vision of things, and I think that's part of it too. I mean, there's a there's a certain humiliation aspect to it too. I mean, humiliating conservative Catholics or conservative. Christians in general uh, can have very uh, large payoffs economically and politically down the pipeline if you can disorient them and you know make them realize that they are an occupied people and you know make them feel like they no longer have a role in society and I think humiliation is a really powerful aspect um, to all of this too. There are political uh, benefits to destroying the the the, the cultural. Um, you know, homogeneity, um, the cultural cohesion, the cultural, uh, you know, the ability for people to connect together um, within the same community, you tear that apart, you can capture power. I mean, one of the lessons that James Burnham talked about, um, you know, is the ability of real opposition is the only way to confront actual uh, political power. You need to have some sort of uh, political power yourself in order to legitimately confront something. Uh, and so by weakening them and um, preventing coalitions and preventing um, you know, uh, power blocks to gather together to confront you, keeping people separate and keeping people um, at, tearing at each other's throats uh, has massive political payoffs to those in power. Yeah. Yeah. That's the scary thing. At the end of the day, this could be a very, very cynical ploy for just yeah, a power worship, I think. And then I think this leftward cultural drift is maybe, first of all, enabled coming out of our classical liberal kind of cultural milieu. And then it drifts into this this power struggle that we're seeing here that you, that you just so aptly described. Um, let me ask you as well, uh, being a Californian myself, regarding places like California, you know, and obviously California is is widely panned and criticized and mocked as being one of the most nutty kind of liberal states, you know, whether that's New York, California, what have you. Uh, certainly California is one of the top, you know, liberal states. As You know, liberal, I know that's a loaded term, right? And scare quotes, but progressive, woke. Sure, yeah, progressive. Yeah. Um, okay, so given, given that, um, but this is something that I talk about often on this, on our California podcast here, is that we have large swaths of California that are 
not culturally woke, progressive, uh, statist necessarily. There are huge swaths of the state mm-hmm. land. I mean, the land, of course, used to be what was represented in the Senate. Um, that's a whole separate conversation as you know, the California Republic, but huge swaths of the land, big chunks of, of the people um, are very conservative, uh, sometimes populist and even libertarian, certainly up in kind of the state of Jefferson, up in Northeast California and the deserts. And let me ask your opinion, um, given our, our conversation up till now, what is the solution for the state of California or places like this, where maybe people in the in the working Central Valley or people out in the mountains and deserts where they feel completely, well, they're not represented, they feel abandoned and even targeted. Uh, many of the industries here mm-hmm. that the, the so-called working class work in are targeted by Sacramento. Farms, ranches with water, mm-hmm. um, oil, gas, minerals, um, they're targeted with these radical environmental regimes and lawsuits. Um, what what is the solution? I mean, should people just get up, move their families, and flee the state, or is there, in your opinion, a value to to fighting back or to standing up for your local community in a broader, you know, in a huge state where, for some of us, Sacramento is many hours away? What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I don't know where you are in California, but um, California is a very misunderstood place politically. Yes, um, yes, it's. I think it's more conservative, even than most people realize like like there's a lot of people flooding like flooding to texas like uh, you know the major hubs in texas to find better uh economic opportunities and uh, a less Correct. intense cultural atmosphere in their opinion but i think there's mm-hmm. actually um you know there's there's not as many economically beneficial places uh, in rural california but i would i would put up rural california culture as a conservative bulwark uh, against most of the yes. suburban areas in texas or any other place you know there's there's places like arkansas and idaho that are probably more conservative than california but where i live i live in um i live in like colfax area which is up outside of tahoe and it's um Okay. It's way more conservative than every, people could possibly imagine for California. It's old mining territory. I mean, there's still people here that have their stakes and they're still looking for gold and they have absolutely no interest in, you know, the left, uh, cultural or otherwise, you know, they're very conservative. And I, I, I can't picture my region as ever going woke. It's so ingrained in even the geography in the mountains. You can't develop it. You can't, um, you can't bring in a lot of these tech firms up here. You know, it's just completely sure. culturally, um, you know, what's the word? It doesn't change very swiftly at all. There's, there's continuity over time in, in places like, you know, the, the mountainous area. So I would, I guess what I would advise is two things. One, individual particularity. Where are you in, in life? What obligations do you have? Like I, you know, those of us who have families, that's our primary obligation. The idea that we're going to go to Sacramento um, and become a representative, I think is beyond the scope of our own um, obligations and our own priorities. Like raise your family well. I mean, that that has long-term payoffs in a much more powerful way than any immediate uh, legislative efforts you know, could have and those types right. of things. The other thing I would suggest is being um, very regionally conscious. Uh, you know, where, where are you? Don't think of yourself as a Californian, but where are you regionally within that context? And, you know, what tools do you have? What friends do you have? And what, what is the general atmosphere of that area? Um, you know, one of the, one of the problems right now that I'm, that I'm facing where I live is we're getting a lot of like Bay area expats and they consider themselves, uh, more conservative because, you know, they're, they're not on board with all of the, you know, the, the most recent, um, extension of the, of the woke 
revolution. Um, but at the same time, when sure. they come into my area, they're like, they're seen as liberal because, you know, just compared to where they come from, they're actually really conservative, but they're actually very liberal when they come up here too. Right. So I would just be more aware of, of building up networks of people that recognize and at least are aware of what is happening, like migrationally and, and what can you do to preserve the area? Um, but like it, it really, it, this is a, another problem with California is it's very diverse um, regionally. Yes. It's very, very diverse. It's yes. probably just as diverse regionally as America <clears throat> as a whole. I mean, we have San Francisco yeah. for sure. We have Los Angeles for sure. Um, but we have places that are more rugged and undevelopable uh, than, than like a Texas or anything like that too. So regional consciousness is, is a part of it. Like if you live in uh, like the Bay Area, yeah, for sure. Get mm -hmm. out. But like the idea that you're going to yeah. let Newsom bug you as someone who lives up in the hills, um, I think you're going to find that that other governors have more influence over your life than than Californians here. Like we all there was a there was a, a funny, you know, I don't want to get anyone in trouble, um, but I know okay. people <laughs> that participate with local sheriffs <laughs> in things like hunting and fishing that are at odds with California law. And it's just part of the culture here. And the culture is more sure. powerful than the employment of, um, you know, legal tactics to get you in trouble. You know, like I, I grew up in a really small mountain town, um, you know, where things like hunting and fishing, uh, you know, it's heavily regulated in California, uh, but there's no enforcement yes. of that because the culture was just so, um, you know, consistent with older ways of American life. Yeah. And I think you make a really good point about California's geography. Um, mm -hmm. One of the things I talk about is these clear uh, geographic boundaries, which are also cultural boundaries. And they, they're a powerful metaphor. Like the city of San Francisco, as many people famously know, is surrounded on three sides by water. It's almost an island of progressivism, mm -hmm. uh, wokeness to itself. Um, the whole Bay Area is kind of surrounded by mountains and water. It's almost like an island of whatever you consider it, wokeism. Um, then we have the coast range along the coast for several hundred miles, you know, runs kind of northwest, southeast, um, parallel to the coastline. And it insulates, you know, if you want to you push this metaphor further, it insulates much of um, the Central Valley, which is more working class, working lower and middle class folks. Um, a lot of um, Mexican ancestry there. There are Basques, there are Hmong people, lots of different immigrants coming together. Um but definitely a working class area, which is insulated, if you will, by the mountains from from the coastal mm -hmm. uh, coastal L.A., the Bay Area and so forth. Then we have the deserts and like you're saying, the mountains, which are just they're harder to reach. They're harder to develop. Mm -hmm. uh, maybe they're considered more remote. And hence, you can have these little great, cool pockets of localism where people just live with each other, hopefully respecting each other's property and uh, and cultures and traditions. And I think that is a really good metaphor uh, for the state, which, like you're mentioning, people yeah. don't realize the incredible diversity of our state here. Yeah, it's 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 uh, it's people. I mean, people across America, they just they they think most people think of California as just like the entire thing is Los Angeles or something. Um, and <laughs> it's hilarious. Right. It's hilarious how wrong and that Disneyland. Is. Yeah. I mean, California was always like a conservative bulwark, yeah, yeah, like up until Reagan. You know, so. Uh, it's it's a very right. politically captured state for sure. Like the this, the like the the Democrats, um, and I don't mean to say that in a way that's like Republicans are good, Democrats are bad. Like bad, I, I have I have zero interest in that. Yeah. But I should say like the left, you know that that pervades both parties. Um, they've they've 
politically right. castrated, you know, the state uh, in a way that's not representative of most of the state. I think mo- I think most of the state actually is conservative. Yes. Yeah. And I think there's a lot of wisdom in what you say as well. Um, it almost goes hand in hand with, for me, I'm a Catholic and the idea of subsidiarity. Mm-hmm. It's like, let's take care of our spheres of influence, our kids, our, our wives, our families, then our neighbors, right? And our, our local community. There's a lot of work to do just right there mm-hmm. um, th- to protect and to build and to keep our organic um, communities safe and vibrant. And then, yeah, we've always got pollution and garbage coming at us and hyper-regulation from San, San Francisco, well, Sacramento in particular. And um, what we can do is focus local. In the meantime, I'll also support or cheer on uh, movements like the state of Jefferson if they can get that going county by county. I'll be a supporter. I think California is ripe to be broken up um, because of some of these cultural reasons and, yeah. and whatnot that we discussed. I would say too, like in conclusion, a lot of people like they'll go to the state of Jefferson and all that stuff. And uh, I think those are great, healthy, um, you know, they, they, um, they help shape people's uh, recognition that you don't have to stay with like an oppressive place forever, you know, but at the same time, um, you know, we can't just thrive on these things. We have to actually capture power. I don't think there's any yeah. way of um, sus- like of, of confronting the left that's in power without actually having power themselves. So I would encourage those interested in the state of Jefferson, which I am, I'm very interested in those types of movements. I would encourage them to also think about what they can do to actually capture power. You have to hold power at the local level and tell Sacramento no. You can't just be an right. individual and sign petitions or you know go to protests or write to your representative or all that stuff. That's not actually exercising power. You have to think about what can I do? Uh, what can we do as a community to actually put people in power to have the authority to say no and to stand up to Sacramento? Awesome. Fully agree. Let me ask you one really quick question before I let you go to honor the time commitment. Um, if you can, if you have it off the top of your head, what are two or maybe three books that anyone listening to this podcast or, or your listeners, um, what books should people read that they might not have read um, in the typical kind of liberty canon? You know, it, what do you recommend? It's yeah. wide open there. Yeah. So, um, you know, I'm a huge Paul Gottfried fan. Um, I think the ability to interpret the world around us, I think, is a really um you know, you have to have the arsenal to properly interpret it. If you misinterpret it, you're going to have, um, you know, uh, misconstrued solutions. And I, and I can't think of a better book than Multiculturalism and the Politics of Guilt by Paul Gottfried. Um, okay. You know, that book really has, has done a lot in understanding why, you know, the modern left uses therapeutic language. Um, you know, where the therapeutic state, as he calls it, comes from. So that's, that's you know, one of the, the main books I would recommend. Um, let's see what else is there. Um, it's hard at the top of my head, but yeah, I mean, Paul Gottfried and, um, you know, like a, like a lot of people, like, I mean, I think there was a time for, for like the reading of like Murray Rothbard and you could read him on the progressive era and stuff like that. But like, I think people need more practicality, um, and a lot less like theory. You know, I don't think, I don't think we're going to be helped along by better understanding like, um, like Lockean property rights. Like, I don't think that's going to do a lot to help us, you know, gain power. But I would spend a lot of time in those people who have articulated, you know, the science of power, like, like Paul Gottfried, I would read, I would read his, you know, I would look up his, his commentary on like Antonio Gramsci, who was Mm. like the, you know, the, the founder of the left's, you know, cultural hegemony. Like I would, I would look, I would just read like those types of, 
um, commentaries by like by Paul and and even people like you know James Burnham and um, you know they're going to be challenging to people like libertarians. You know they're going to recommend solutions that are at odds with libertarianism. But I think those are they stretch your mind and they push you in in more realistic uh, directions. Also, I would say read history. Um, you have to understand what happened in the 20th century um, from a perspective outside of uh, the, the the establishment court historian. You know, I think yeah. you need to understand the development of history, what actually happened in Europe in the 20th century, uh, what actually happened uh, in America from an outsider's perspective in the 1960s and 70s. I, actually, another book that I would recommend is Christopher Caldwell's book, The Age of Entitlement. Uh, It's kind of a reinterpretation of the 1960s and the civil rights revolution. And he basically says um, that the the American constitution was replaced by a new constitution and America was refounded in the 1960s. So I would recommend that book too, The Age of Entitlements by Christopher Caldwell. Um, those are two books that, that I can think of at the top of my head. Obviously I'm sitting amongst books and if I looked around, I'd find some, um, (laughs) you could also read, uh, there's a little summary of, um, James Burnham's thought by Sam Francis called, um, power and history. Uh, unfortunately it's hard to get and it's a little expensive, but I, I, if you could find it, I would read that book power and history by Sam Francis. Um, that would be the last one I, I recommend. Very good. No, those are great recommendations. Um, I appreciate that. Um, so CJ, I want to honor the the time commitment here. I really appreciate uh, you coming on to the podcast today and uh, hope to do it again in the future. Um, thanks and have a great weekend to you. Yeah, thanks for having me. Have a good one. Thank you. This has been the California Liberty Project Podcast. Make sure to subscribe, share it with others, and follow us on Instagram and Twitter.